chapter 52, verse 13, uh, to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. need to move that down, don't I? I'm going to touch the microphone today. We've been in the book of Isaiah. Uh, we've been uh, uh, looking at the advent of hope and peace and joy, all from the book of Isaiah. And here today we're going to look from this text, from our text in Isaiah 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. We're going to look at the advent of love the advent of love. And I'm just going to read one verse out of this text and then pray, and then we'll look at our text as a whole. And so if you would focus your attention to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 10. The prophet Isaiah writes, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Let us pray. Father, we pray as we look at your word this morning that, Father, that we would have a clear understanding of its message. That, Father, we would lay aside every sin and weight and anxiety and worry and everything of this world that would distract our attention. And Father, we pray that we would focus on your word, that we would focus on your son, Jesus Christ. For Father, we know that you have a word for us this morning, a word of hope, a word of encouragement, a word to strengthen us, and Father, a word to save us. And so Father, we look to eager, with eager anticipation what you're going to say to us this morning out of your word. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When we think of God's love during this time of year, this Christmas and Advent season, often our thoughts go to the nativity scene, to a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And that's a good place to start. There in the, in the manger, we discover the Christ child. We see the incarnation. We see our God who put on human flesh, and he dwelt among us. That is good news, and we ought to rejoice in it. However difficult for many at this time of year is to go from the baby Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, to Christ Jesus hanging on a cross, enduring the agony and suffering of crucifixion and the mocking and rejection of his people. Yet the cross is the greatest picture of God's love for us. It is the ultimate manifestation. Christ on the cross, suffering the wrath of a just and holy creator on our behalf. A just and holy God displaying his love for us in the offering of his Son, because of our sin, so that those who believe are saved from his righteous wrath, forgiven of their sins, and adopted into the family of God. Our minds don't go there during Advent and Christmas because the reality is we like the baby Jesus lying in a manger, surrounding by Mary and Joseph and shepherds and animals. It is nice and tame and a great story for the little ones. 
Not so much crucifixion with its agonies and sufferings and death. Yet it is at the cross that Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, makes any sense. It is at the cross that the magnificent story, the magnificent story of the birth of Jesus is connected to the pleasure that is in the heart of God. That is why Isaiah chapter 53 verse 10 is the epicenter of this suffering servant passage and is what it reveals to us. God's heart, his heart, his heart of love for sinners being such that it was his will to crush his son, to make his soul an offering for our guilt. But how is it that God the Father would ever find pleasure in the crushing in bringing the grief of his son. Yet this is what the verse tells us, and it should jar us and shake us and get us to think about God's love. It should get us to thinking about God's love, not as we imagine it, but as the Bible describes it and reveals it. You see, for the doctrine of the love of God is a difficult one. Why is it difficult? I'm going to give you five reasons I think why that the doctrine of the law of God is difficult. One, it's difficult because while we believe in a loving God, too often our belief in a loving God is set within a foundation other than Scripture. Far too many Christians set the foundation of God's love on a monistic, naturalistic pluralism that has a Pollyannish optimism to it rather than anything of substance. Now, what does that mean? What did I say? In case you missed it, it is a belief in humanity's inherent goodness and that God loves us, each of us individually, because of our goodness. Hence, the pie in the sky, God is going to love us because of us. But this is not what the Bible tells us. Second, it is difficult because we disbelieve many of the complementary truths about God found in Scripture. Yes, we believe uh, God is love. But what the Bible tells us about the love of God is always connected what it tells us about his sovereignty, about his holiness, about his wrath, what flows out of his holiness, his providence, and his personhood. His love cannot be separated from any of them. For, for example, yes, God is love, but he is also just and holy, and he will judge and condemn the wicked to an internal punishment. Third, it is difficult because too many Christians have a sentimental, synchronistic, pluralistic view of God. In other words, we believe, too many of us believe that all religions are the same, and since God is love, he's going to save everyone no matter what they believe and how they live. Or, as long as you profess Christ, it doesn't matter how you live because God is love, and he will forgive you, and he will allow you into heaven. The statement that God is love and therefore he must forgive, though, simply isn't true. Fourth, it is difficult because many churches, and I pray not ours, have fallen into believing a centralized version of God's love that is not consistent with God as presented in Scripture. In other words, with the, without dealing with the, when dealing with the creator, the God of the universe, these Factuous reductionisms about the love of God are dangerous. Now, what do I mean by factuous reductionisms? One, one such is that God hates sin 
but loves the sinner. It sounds good on the surface, but it makes it sound like God is merely angry with sin, but not with you. But you are the one who sinned, and sin has no moral quality apart from the person who commits it. God punishes sinners, not sin. But because he loves sinners, he has done everything to keep you from getting what you deserve, his just wrath and judgment. Fifth, it is difficult because many churches see the doctrine of the love of God as simple and not the difficult doctrine that it is. It is a difficult doctrine because it has many different biblical contexts and nuances and layers of meaning that cannot be understood apart from understanding who God is as revealed in his word. For instance, how can a perfectly loving God also be perfectly just in his wrath? Just saying that God is love will not answer that question, but understanding what is meant by God is love will. And what is meant by God is love can never be removed from what is meant by God is just and holy and righteous. You see, you cannot categorize God. God is not an impersonal force. He is a personal being, and you must take him as a whole. Yes, God is love, but he is also just, and he is also holy. So at first glance, our text seems like a strange passage concerning the advent of love. Yet here in our passage, we encounter the suffering servant, Jesus Christ. We encounter a clear description of the gospel. Here we encounter God's pleasure in crushing his son on our behalf. Here we encounter God's love for us, his wonderful, magnificent, beyond comprehension love. So how do we know that this passage is talking about Jesus Christ? Very simply, Acts chapter 8, verses 30, 26 through 40. There, if you remember in that story that the deacon Philip had been taken by the Spirit up down to Egypt, and he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch, eunuch who's on his way back to Ethiopia from Jerusalem. And the eunuch is reading the passage, this passage, this very passage of Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. He's reading that passage and he asks Philip if the prophet is talking about himself or someone else. And Acts 8.35 tells us, Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And so we know that this passage is talking about Jesus Christ because we read about it in Acts chapter 8. But there are other arguments, but this one will suffice because it's the clearest, right? That Philip shows him that the scripture was talking about Jesus Christ. Now back to verse 10 in, in the ESV here, we see that it reads, it reads, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. But under other translations, render it clearer, they say it this way, it was the Lord's pleasure to crush him. It was God's pleasure to crush Jesus Christ, his son. Dear ones, I hope this gets you to ask some serious questions. Like what could be so powerful and so motivating in the heart of God that he would find pleasure in crushing his son. 
What could be in the heart of the son that he would be willing to be crushed? The answer is love. Wonderful, magnificent, unimaginable, faithful, and joyful, redeeming love. A love that surpasses understanding, Paul tells us in, in the New Testament. Let's look at our text then that we, so we can learn about this love, this wonderful, magnificent love. In chapter 52, verse 13 is where we start. Here we have an introduction to the servant of God. We, we have in these verses in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, an introduction to the servant of God and an introduction to the victory that the servant of God, who is Jesus Christ, wins. And so here in these uh, verses, we're going to see the victory of God's servant. And the first thing we see that, that uh, it's God talking. He says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. In other words, what, what he's saying here, that God is saying, he's saying that his servant shall be victorious. His servant shall succeed. And the fact that he shall be victorious and succeed will result in him, him being high and lifted up and him being glorified and exalted. And this denotes then that, that this servant is God's servant. And because he is God's servant, there's no doubt but that the servant will succeed. And because the servant is Jesus Christ, we know he succeeded. And so the text here in 50 through 12, he, it starts with victory, the victory of God's servant. When we get to the end of our passage in chapter 53, verse 12, it ends with victory. We have a bookcase of victory, victory at the beginning and victory at the end. Victory because the servant has acted wisely. He has acted wisely because he has done the Father's will. He has done God's will. The question then naturally arises, what kind of victory will this be? This is a good question, and because and, uh, as it is presented between verses 15, uh, or 52, 13 and 53, 12, what we see there in those verses between our two bookends of victory looks nothing like victory, at least not to the world it doesn't. It isn't the kind of victory that the proud, arrogant, dominating people of the world would recognize. It isn't the kind of victory that would be celebrated in the halls of the bright and the bold and the beautiful. This is the idea between, behind verse 14. Look at, at verse 14. It says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred behind, beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. You see, victory here was found in the suffering of God's servant. It was found in his own hurt and injury so that his appearance was marred, marred beyond the appearance of the children of man. So much so that God's servant here is, is described in such a way that he is not the desire of the nations. Rather, he is their astonishment. They are astonished at this fact. They are astonished at the fact that he he has victory in suffering, that he has suffered. In fact, when you look at verse 15, it, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. And, and that, that phrase there can either mean startle, he can startle many nations, or that he purifies many nations. But either way, what it is, it, 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 that they are astonished at what he is doing, at what the servant of God is doing, that he has suffered to his own hurt and injury, 
So much so they are astonished that, that it has shut the mouth of kings. That's what it says in, in first there. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Because of the victory that he has through the suffering to his own hurt that they are astonished. So you see the servant, whether he either startles or purifies the nations, he will bring justice by means of his own injury and abuse. Such a thing, verse 15 is telling us, that they have never heard, but now they see and understand. You see, it's so astonishing that, that, that they don't know what to say. It's so astonishing that no one would believe it unless the fact is that God has revealed it to them. You see, that's the good news for us. We would have never believed it unless God had opened our eyes to the good news of Jesus Christ. We would have been astonished and shut our mouths. But God opened us up through the Spirit to the good news of Jesus Christ, that he died for us. And so in these first three verses, we see the victory of the servant. But then in the next three verses, in, verses, in verse 53, uh, uh, verses 1 through 3, we see the rejection of God's servant. The rejection of God's servant. In verse 53, uh, 1, it says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? What they have heard was everything that Isaiah had been saying in, in, in his book, in his prophecy, especially in chapters 42, 49, and 50, the, the other three suffering servant passages. There's four what they call songs of the servant. Uh, this is the fourth one. And so he'd been talking about the servant of God in chapter 42 and 49 and 50. This, this is what they heard, and he's saying here what they have heard. He says, who has believed what they have heard from us? Who has believed what we've been saying about God's redemption, about him sending someone to redeem his people? And yet they did not believe it. And in the second part of that verse, he asked the question, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now what, what that means is the arm of the Lord is a reference to God's servant mentioned in, in the beginning of chapter 52, verse 1. This is the servant who's been promised to redeem his people whom we know as Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so Isaiah is telling us here that, that the promise that God had promised to his people of sending a, a redeemer, a servant who would redeem his people, is disbelieved and the servant is rejected. This is, you see, this is the heart of humanity. This is the heart of our wickedness and our sin that we do not believe God and we reject those he sends to tell us the truth, to tell us about himself, to tell us to repent and turn away from our sins. In this case, we see that they rejected the servant of God, Jesus Christ. In verses 2 through 3 give us a reason why. It says, For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hid their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. He comes, you see, we rejected him, we turned away, because Jesus Christ did not come as an all-conquering hero with trumpets and fanfare, did he? But he came in a quiet and unassuming way, a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying 
in a manger. Also, he had no beauty or majesty to draw himself to people. He was not among the elite. He didn't show up in a palace. He didn't hang out with kings. He hung out with stinky fishermen. Finally, they rejected him because he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So they hid their faces from him in shame, and they did not esteem him. You see, the reality is that, that human nature is such that we don't like to be around those who suffer, especially those who suffer because of their own wickedness or sin. And that's what it's saying here is, is in verse 3 is that, that they, they, they hid their faces from him out of shame because of what they thought he had done. You see, they thought he was suffering the just penalty of his sin from a just and holy creator. So they hid their faces from him. They turned away. And so that's why the servant of God is not esteemed. His suffering was viewed as a righteous response to his sin and wickedness. They missed the fact that the servant had come to take away the sins of the world. And so they paid no attention to him. The third thing we're going to see, we see the suffering of the servant of God. We see how he suffered and, and we see why he suffered. Uh, first, why did the servant of God suffer? Look in verse 4. He said, surely he bore our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken. Why did, why did he suffer? So Because he carried our griefs and our sorrows. He carried our sin and our transgressions. He suffered on our behalf. And how did he suffer? He, he suffered by bearing these upon himself, by taking the just judgment that should have been ours and taking it upon himself. He bore our sins and transgressions in our place. And why was there a need for this? Look, look at that, uh, verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. You see, there was a need for us because we had turned away from God. We had rejected God. We had rejected his ways. And because of that, we had each our own way, turned to our own way. And God had laid on him in our place the penalty of our sin. We rebelled against a holy and just God and became slaves to sin and under the curse of death. We were dead in our sin. There was nothing we could do to make ourselves alive. There was nothing we could do to right our relationship with God. There was nothing within our power to undo the curse of death. Yet God in his love, God in his patience and forbearance, laid upon his servant Jesus Christ our sins, our sorrows, our griefs, our transgressions. He laid upon his servant Jesus Christ the inequity of us all. Christ suffered for us. He was beaten for us because of our sin, because we were unwilling to turn away from our sin and our rebellion, our disobedience, and turn to a just God. And we couldn't do it, even if we wanted to, because we were dead in our sin. And so it was the Father's pleasure to crush the Son. God looked at our state. He looked at our sin. 
He looked at our sickness. He looked at our brokenness. He looked at our condition before him. And because he is just and holy, he condemned us. But because he is also loved and full of grace and compassion, he was not willing to allow us to stay in our state. So in the advent of love, God sent his son Jesus Christ and laid upon him at the cross the inequity of us all. Let us not miss the point here. When verse 10 tells us that it was the God's pleasure to crush the Son, God's pleasure wasn't in the moments of the suffering of the Son, but in what the suffering resulted in. He suffered in our place so that we didn't have to suffer the wrath of God. There is the wonderful, magnificent story of God's love. Next we see the experience of the servant of God in verses 7 through 9. Here it tells us uh, that he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before his shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there is no deceit in his mouth. And so what we see here is the experience of the servant of God that he, he suffered oppression, and yet he was afflicted. He suffered oppression and affliction from the hands of his people. And yet he suffered, yet he did not open his mouth. He did not uh, uh, rail against it. He did not def try to defend himself, but he went willingly. Jesus Christ, our Savior, went willingly to the cross. Willingly, like a lamb to the slaughter, he went to the cross. And so by this oppression and judgment, even, even though it was meant for evil, it, even though he was deprived himself of justice, and that he was, as verse 8 says, that he was cut off from the land of the living, his life was cut short, and that he was left without descendants, he was stricken for the transgressions of God's people, that he willingly allowed himself to suffer in our place. And then in verse 9, it, it says, the servants resting, it talks about where they laid him. They made his grave with the wicked, with the rich man in his death, buried with the rich. Uh, it's, it, it's, it's important to understand here, what they're saying is, is that, that they, even in his death, they insulted him and mocked him by burying him with the rich man. Now we know, we know from the Gospels, he was buried in, in, in a rich man's tomb, wasn't he? And, and, and so what they're saying here is, is that he was buried with the rich man. That, that was an insult because the rich back then were viewed, in, yes, in one sense, as having the blessings of God, but not, not in the prophets. Whenever the prophets talk about the rich, they talk about the rich in a bad way. They talk about the rich, how the rich have oppressed the poor. And so here he's saying that Jesus, the servant of God, was buried with the rich. That is oppression and his injustice even extended to that point. And yet there was no deceit in his mouth. 
There was no deceit in his mouth. He, he, he was afflicted. He didn't open his mouth, and yet there was no deceit in his mouth. That's what it says at the end of verse 9. What that's saying is, even though they, they treated him like a wicked man, an unrighteous man, and killing him and burying him, that Christ was righteous and just, that there was no sin. He was sinless. He was perfect. He lived a sinless, perfect life. And the Gospels t tell us that, that Christ died in our place uh, given, as a sin, sinless offering, as a perfect offering in our place. And so even though they treated, they oppressed him and afflicted him, he became a sacrifice for us. He suffered oppression and was deprived of justice, stricken by God on our behalf. And finally here in our passage in verses 10 through 12, the love of God and the love of his servant becomes very evident. We see why that, that God, was, it was the will of God, or the will of the Lord, it was his pleasure to crush him. Because he was crushed for us, our iniquities. He pour, bore the price for us. You see here, what we have here in, in these verses is the atoning nature of the sacrificial death of Christ. The substitutionary atonement that Christ stood in our place and took the wrath of God so that we didn't have to suffer the judgment of God. And so here we encounter the atonement. Here we encounter the heart of God. Here we encounter his love. You see, if we don't understand that, then these words in verse 10 may strike you as the most terrible of words. But when we understand the love of God, how he poured out himself through his son Jesus Christ, that he stood in our place and suffered his wrath in our place, then these words in verse 10 ought to bring you joy. They ought to help you understand the depth of God's love. Because you see, only something greater and of infinite worth could turn those words into good news. And it is exactly in those words that we discover the heart of God towards his people. His love for sinners who are unable to do the one thing, to right the wicked and the evil uh, and wickedness of their hearts in actions. And so it's because of God's love for his people that he offered his son Jesus Christ as a sacrifice, a sacrifice in our place. So instead of crushing us with the justice of his wrath, he crushed his son with the justice of his love. The servant died in our place that we might have the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. In verse 11 then, what we see in verse 12, 10 or 11, uh, after he has, has suffered in our place and he has died in our place, he says that he shall see his offspring, he shall see him prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And so what we hear here is a picture of the resurrection. Not only did he die, but he rose again from the dead. That's what he means by he prolonged his days and prospered his hand. He exalted his servant, Jesus Christ, by resurrecting him from the dead, and not only resurrecting him from the dead, but he seated him at his right hand in heaven. And then it says the suffering servant shall delight in the suffering. Why? Why does the suffering servant delight in the suffering? Because by his knowledge, by his intimate relationship with the Father, he has made many to be accounted righteous. 
that he has bore the sins of many and made them right with God. And so that we've been adopted into the family of God. We're God's children. And you see Jesus now has brothers and sisters, right? That we are joint heirs with Christ. He has many descendants through the fact that he died for us. And because the servant knows God in an intimate relationship and indeed shares God's own righteousness, he was able to make many people, he is able to make many people righteous by bearing their inequities. You see, here's the good news that we see here in verse 12. Christ has won the victory. Amen? Christ has won the victory. And so God will bless his servant even though he poured out his soul to death and even though he was numbered among the transgressors and he bore the sin of many and made intercession for transgressors, that Christ has won the victory. God has exalted him and he sits at the right hand of God in heaven. So let's not miss what this text answers for us this morning. It answers the question, on what basis can a righteous God justify the ungodly? And it answers the question is, how can God bring sinners into heaven without spoiling heaven? And how can God punish sin without punishing the sinner? He did it through his servant, Jesus Christ. He did it through his son who offered a righteous sacrifice for sin in our place. He did it by punishing the Son of God. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 26 the passage I read at the beginning told us that, that Christ became a propitiation, a guilt offering for us in our place. And so those who believe in him through faith are justified in the sight of God, the God who is both the just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus Christ. Then Romans 5.8 just reinforces it by telling us that God demonstrated his love, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the cross is the ultimate demonstration of God's love. It is where God's justice and his love come together. It is God's power in, at its greatest, not in the destruction of the wicked, but in his taking of all the wickedness that we possessed into himself and giving back to us love. And so what does this mean for us today as Christians? How how do we live out this good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Christ died for us? First, I would tell you that rest in Christ. Rest in this. Rest in the fact that God has crushed his son on your behalf. Rest in, that, in the fact that he, he did not spare his son, but rather gave up his son so that we might have the forgiveness of sins. You see, you don't have to work for your salvation. You don't have to work. Christ did the work on the cross for you. You can rest in him. Romans 8, 30, 31 tells us this. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You see, you can rest in Christ because if God did not spare his own son but gave us his son for our 
our salvation, how will he not graciously give us everything that we need in this life to follow him? Rest, strength, protection, joy, love, reconciliation. He gives us security in Christ. He goes on in that passage to say that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. You see, you can rest in Christ because you have assurance of your salvation. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Rest in Christ. The second, endure suffering in Christ. As Christ suffered, you've been called to suffer too. No one likes that. No, one, no one's jumping up and down for that. But that's the reality. As Christ has suffered for us, we have been called to endure suffering on his behalf. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 20 through 25 remind us of that. That as Christ suffered, we've been called to suffer and to endure suffering in his, on his behalf. Listen, he, it says this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And so you can endure suffering because Christ endured suffering. And God graciously gives you all things, even the strength to endure suffering. And so, dear ones, find rest in your souls with this good news. God, who did not spare his own son, will also give you all things, including the ability to endure the suffering of this world. In the words of the hymn, do you see what wondrous love this is? that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the dreadful curse for my soul. 1 John 4.10 tells us this, Here is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. And so do you wish to see the advent of God's love? Then look to the cross, do you wish to see how God's love and justice, his righteous judgment, his wrath came together? Look to the cross. There you will see what you have not been told and understand what you have not heard. There the arm of the Lord has been revealed. There at the cross did the Savior die. There at the cross was the blood applied. There at the cross gave, God gave himself as a guilt offering for our sin to satisfy his wrath. There at the cross did his grace and love, his peace and perfect justice meet. There at the cross, God and Christ reconciled the lost and dying world in love. There God's love was wondrously, magnificently displayed. Do you see it? Do you know it? Have you heard and believed? If not, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. For our sake, and because of his great love for us, 
He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Therein is God's love. Let us pray. Father, we are grateful for the manifestation of your love towards us in your servant Jesus Christ. We are grateful that through your spirit that what we have been told we now see and what we have heard we now understand. And Father, without the work of your spirit we would be like those who did not believe what they heard, or we'd be like those who failed to see your arm as has been revealed in your salvation through Jesus Christ. We would have been like those who despised and rejected your son, Jesus Christ, who hid their faces from him and esteemed him not. Yet because of your spirit, Father, you opened our eyes, and we were thankful that Christ bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. We are thankful that he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our inequities. We are thankful that the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. Father, as we celebrate together as your people the Lord's Supper, may we remember your grace, that despite the fact that we like sheep had gone astray, each to our own way, that you laid on Christ the inequity of us all. Father, we thank you that he was oppressed and afflicted and died for us in our place, that we might live for him. And Father, we, we are thankful that it was your pleasure for him to die in our place, to put him to grief, so that his soul would make an offering for our guilt. And we are thankful that you raised him from the dead and that through his death, burial, and resurrection, that he has made many to be accounted righteous by bearing their sins on the cross. So we rejoice together as we celebrate the Lord's Supper that having made intercession for us, transgressors, that he sits at your right hand and will one day come again. And because of his obedience, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen.